He turned towards me. He turned towards me, and I slowly turned towards him, and it quickly became awkward. I don't remember what class it was. I don't remember the name of the class, although I do recall it was my last year of university, and I remember how I felt that day in class. See, at some point in the lecture, our professor was making a point about being known and about knowing others, and then he said these terrifying words. Turn to your neighbor. We are going to spend three minutes just looking into each other's eyes. That's it. Absolute silence. Just turn to your neighbor, and we're going to spend a few minutes looking into each other's eyes. Prepare yourselves. Go. Right? The tension in the room was palpable. What did he say? It would have been a far easier ask to say, would you please come up here one by one and stand in front of the entire classroom and confess your deepest, darkest, most secret sin? Like, that would have been a far easier ask. But this, like looking into the eyes of somebody for three minutes, it took no contemplation at all. It was a reflex of our soul. We knew to turn towards someone and do that, that was weighty. It was scary. It was vulnerable. And that was not going to happen. <laughs> but then... He turned to me. That guy sitting in the back left in the classroom all semester, the second floor of the liberal arts building, Hellums there at the University of Colorado all those years ago, he turned to me and I, with a stressed out grin, slowly turned to him and said, here we go. <laughs> Three minutes. Three minutes started to tick on by. And understand, please understand this so we get this. He was all of a, but a stranger to me. Like, I had no clue who this guy was. And there we sat, looking quietly into each other's faces for an interminable three minutes. An epoch, an age, everlasting upon everlasting. I think it was the longest three minutes of my life. Um, does that sound fun to you? Does that sound good? So here's what we're going to do. Please turn to your neighbor. We're going to put three minutes <laughs> up on the clock and see what happens. I'm not, I'm not going to do it to you. Somebody is already sweating just because I said turn to your neighbor. Some of you, your inner Jason Bourne just sprang to life and you did a quick analysis of all the exits in the room so you could escape the threat. Right? There's a visceral response to this. Why? Why was there such a visceral and powerful response to this face-to-face -face exercise? Well, I think it's simply because it taps into the deep wells of our hearts. It draws upon ancient waters that are within us. It addresses something of the deepest desires and deepest design of our human nature. It has to do with intimacy. It has to do with connection. It has to do with the mystery of the presence of the attention from another living soul. It has to do with that mysterious and that curious energy that is released when the gaze of one person meets the gaze 
of another person. Well, what does this have to do with Advent? What does this awkward lesson from some decades ago in university have to do with Advent? Everything. It has everything to do with Advent if we see it correctly. Now today marks the beginning of the Advent season. Advent is that season on the, the church calendar that prepares us. The word Advent comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which means arrival or, or coming. And the idea is simply this, that in these weeks leading up to Christmas, it is a time of preparation. It is a time of waiting, of longing for the arrival of Jesus. And in this waiting, we not only wait for the arrival of December 25th to come across the horizon of this season of winter and this season of literal darker days to celebrate the birth of Jesus, but it's twofold. We look forward to the horizon of the cosmic winter and the very real dark days of history that groan forward, that lean and turn towards the future arrival of Jesus to when he comes back. This time not held by a manger, this time not wrapped in swaddling cloths, but this time held by the sky and wrapped in clouds. To when he comes back, not only to be attended to by shepherds, but attended to by all creation, by all creatures. And so today, as we launch into our reflections on Advent, what we're going to do is begin to reflect on John chapter 1. You know, we've been in the book of John for some time, and we've, we've made some, some good ground on it. We've traversed a lot of the territory. But now we're going to go back to John chapter 1, where the entire book is coiled in chapter 1. And even in these first few verses, kind of like a whole forest is, is coiled in an acorn or coiled in seeds. It's all wrapped up tight here in John chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at, at the, the truth, the, the warmth of the truth that he abides with us. So that's what we're going to be doing for the next couple of weeks. And today we'll kick that off with the first few verses. But in order to do that, we should recall why John wrote his book. Why did he write this book? It's going to help us to understand the very first words. So the words at the end of the book will help us understand the words at the beginning of the book. That's how John wrote it. It's meditation literature. We get to the end and we go back to the beginning so we can go deeper in and further and higher up into the truths of it. So John, chapter 20, verse 31, to get us back to John 1, 1. Here's why he wrote this book. These are written, that's all the stories, that's what he has put together. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose statement. That's the mission statement of this book, so that we would see who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? That is the leading question that courses through the veins of the book of John from verse 1 on to the end. And then what difference? What difference does that make for us? Now, knowing that, let's go ahead and look now at the first words of the book of John. And the gospel of John begins with these pregnant sentences. This is John's strange Christmas account, so to speak. In the beginning, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, I, I need to confess that all the time in preparation in the world, 
an hour upon hour here in the pulpit, I could not do justice <laughs> at all to the worlds of light and the realms of wonder that are in these poetically penned words by the Apostle John. They're just simply too deep. But uh, what I would love to try to do today, God have your mercy on me, please, uh, help me to draw out one deep and happy truth that, that's home is in these words. And it's simply this, that Christmas is the gift of God turning towards us to abide with us. That Christmas is the gift of God turning towards us to abide with us. So, the Christmas story, according to John, starts this way. In the beginning, in the beginning, John ingeniously wastes no time setting the arrival of Christ, setting the arrival of Jesus into the context of Genesis, into the context of Scripture, into the context of the whole arc of redemption. In the beginning is a verbal teleport that ushers the book of Genesis into the reader's mind. This Jesus who is about to step onto the scene is not a latecomer in the story. He is the stage builder himself. He's no supporting actor. He is the hero and more so he is the author himself. And briefly, a lesson we should learn and take in from this is simply this, that John reads all of Scripture in light of who Jesus is. And we are to read all of the Bible in and through who Jesus is, if we are to, to read it well. Now, John's in the beginning is something of a beginning before the beginning, you might say. Before there was one Adam spinning, before the first wave hit the first shore, before the first wave and particle of light shimmered and shone, there was the light and the life of the word that was ever shining. And we will see this word is the one who will take on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. So this word, this word that ever was, will enter into time, enter into the medium of, of flesh and bone. This word that ever was will take on lungs and breathe, and as with any child, we'll learn to walk and learn to talk. And so let's echo that a little bit. Let's do some talking about this word, the word. And then we're going to talk about this word with, and then we're going to talk about this word, this word was. So word, with, and was. You guys still with me? Word, with, and was. Those are the ways we're going to move through this passage, and to do so uh, will lead us into the mysteries and into the wonder, or um, I should say the epic essence of Christmas that's underneath all of the wrapping. So word, what is this word? Why does John use the word word? Well, uh, the Greek word here is, is the word logos or uh, logos, um, however you would like to pronounce it. Well, I'll, I'll be saying logos. But it's this Greek word that it was meant to convey the, the divine reason that, that upholds, that undergirds everything that is. It's the ordering principle of reality, so to speak. It's the reason by which the world runs. Or you could say it this way, the logos is the thought and the rationality behind all that is. The thought and the rationality behind all that is. 
Now, this is a Greek philosophical idea that was extremely well-known, that was popular during the time that the apostle John lived. See, there's an ancient philosopher named Heraclitus uh, who was famous for saying this sentence. You might know it. You might have heard this come across it somewhere. Um, but it has to do with change in life. And he said that you can't step into the same river twice. You can't step into the same river twice, for fresh waters are always flowing in upon you. Now, he also said that everything flows and nothing abides. Everything gives way and nothing stays fixed. It was, it was a way of seeing the world um, where he said it's, everything is constantly in change. The stability of the universe is, is an illusion. Now, Heraclitus was one of the great philosophers before Socrates, before Plato. This is B.C., right? So this is hundreds of years before Jesus. And here's an interesting connection with John, who writes our gospel. See, Heraclitus was the eldest son of one of the leading families of the city of Ephesus. Ephesus. One of the main cities of the ancient Greek world, the main cities of the Roman Empire, and it was famous for its temple to Artemis. Now, this is important because this is a city in which, well, I'll ask, or you can guess, who do you think was the pastor at the city for a long time? John was the pastor of the city of Ephesus. So he knew Heraclitus and this thought well. He knew the word logos. He knew it well. Now, this Heraclitus, he understood the ordering of the world, the explanation behind all things to be this logos, the reason, the rationality at the heart of our existence behind all that there is. So John, he's brilliant, spirit-empowered. John brilliantly taps into and uses a word with cultural currency. It's a missional mindset. It's awesome. But he reloads the word. He redirects it. He redeems it as he is to speak of this one called Jesus. So John engages the culture, but his authority is in Scripture. He engages the culture, but his authority is in Scripture. See, John does not get his theology from the pop philosophy of the day. John is actually teaching us what is found within the Hebrew Scriptures. Remember, it begins with in the beginning. John is showing us where he got his theology. In the beginning. The beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 1, tells of the Word of God in action. The Word of God on the move as God's creative agency. So long has it been noted, and we, we know this if we've been around Genesis 1, that God, the Spirit, the Ruach, the breath, and the Word are all there wed together at the creation of all things. So in Genesis chapter 1, the phrase God said is repeated ten times. I have a slide up here with all the, the verse references. God said is repeated there ten times, verses 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, and 28. At the beginning of each of those days of creation, God speaks, and then he speaks other times throughout those days as well. Those, these are ten speech acts, so to speak, right? Ten speeches that are, that, are, that are generative, where God is creating, where God is forming, where God is, is, is filling, Ten references, which, which is interesting. I don't have time to get into it, but often is the comparison is made between these ten generative speech acts and then the Ten Commandments, where God recreates for himself a people. They go through the flood waters. The wind blows over the waters, right? Chaos waters in Genesis, in, in Exodus, the, the, the spirit moves. 
the waters part and the people come out and then there's these ten speech, speech acts of God to form for himself a new people and a new creation, so to speak. Well, here it is at the beginning, God's ten speech acts. What's the point? The point is, one, the scriptures are incredible. They're amazing. But the point is this, God's speech is not simply recorded as something present in the acts of, of creation. But as the creative agency for the creation, God acts through his, his speech, drawing together, separating, molding matter and substance. God's voice is not simply recounting what he will do by some other means. But his speech is the very means by what he does amidst the presence of his spirit. And so at the start, we see God's speech is action in the world. His speech is action. So the word is God's living and active self-expression. God's word is his living and active self-expression. Now, I was, I was talking with my, my nine-year-old Silas yesterday about this, this concept. Um, and he's like, that's confusing. I'm like, I know. So I, I told him, I said, Sai, when I say I, I love you, those aren't just empty words, or they're not just containers with some, some data. They are an expression of my heart towards you. There's this inner reality of who I am and the way I experience this world that's hidden from you, but my words express and reveal what is hidden about who I am, and they communicate it, and they express this truth to you. And he looked at me a little bit curious, like, I think I kind of get it, but still maybe not, because <laughs> I don't get it. But the words are an act of self-expression that reveal the inner hidden reality of, of my heart. And God's word is this self-expression of who he is that, that's effectual and that's, that's active in time and space that reveals who he is. But with my words, man, my words, they can be inauthentic. They can fail, right? They can be disingenuous. They can be hypocritical. There can be distance between who I really am and what my words say, but with God, there's no distance, there's no dissonance, there is no difference between God's heart, between his very self and his spoken word. As he is, he speaks, as he speaks, he is, and as he speaks, he acts because of who he is. His word is his perfect self-expression, God's speech and effective action. And so as you go through the scriptures, when you see God speaking, God is acting. God's speaking and God's acting are one and the same. And what John is communicating to us is that this Jesus, this carpenter from that backwater Galilee region, right, he is God's perfect living and active self-expression. That is a claim. Now, if all that was a bit abstract, let's, let's get personal. Let's move from word to this idea of with. So, what John teaches us here is that in the very beginning, the word, God's living and active self-expression is with him. Now, this is a statement of relationship, a relationship of two persons here. And the amazing thing is, here's what John is saying. He's saying, you know that Jesus, 
The one that we've talked about, the one that was born through the travails of labor, the one that was set in a, in a rough-hewn trough, the one who was born into poverty, born into the, the austere, lean surroundings of a blue-collar family. You know that one who himself took up a hammer? The one who himself took up a chisel? The one who himself was a very specific individual with unique DNA, with specifically set eyes and a specific brow ridge and and specific cheekbones who had the swirl of unique fingerprints. You know him? That one? He existed before the foundations of the world were set. He was before this world was built. And this one was the word, God's living and active self-expression. He was and still is. Now, this one known as Jesus, he is God's very self-expression in flesh and blood. And, and long before he ever sweat and bled on the stones of the streets of Jerusalem, he was with God. And, and this is where I want to do some excavation of some, some treasure. So this word, with, is a preposition. It's a preposition, but in Greek, it's fascinating. It is this preposition, pros. And it's not just, I think it's up there on the screen. Yeah, you can see it there. Um, that's where pros. It's not just a vanilla word that means proximity, like I'm here with some pews and with a, a table because we're in proximity. It means far more than that. See, this word has, has orientation. This word has trajectory. This word has, has movement. It has, has motion. It has relationship baked into its essence. And so it can be better translated as towards. The word was towards God. Oh man, now we got something. The word was towards God. See, this is an image of face-to-faceness. This is an image of intimacy. The word was towards God. The Son was face to face with the Father. This is an expression of deep intimacy. God the Father and God the Son were in deep intimate relationship forever, always and ever, delighting in one another. Their gaze was always this onlooking delight in the other. Now, my, my daughter, Hadley, She's seven, and ever since she was little, like, I mean, just tiny, she would do this thing where she would reach up like this, and, and she would want our face. So we'd lean on our face, and she would put her little palms on our cheeks and pull us in and just stare deep into our eyes. Just, and it was like, oh my goodness, like melt, right? So I have an image of it, so... This is what, this is, wait, was she two or three here? Do you remember? Yeah, two, three-ish. And she would just do this, and she would just, she would just smile. And, and I asked her yesterday, because I was working on the sermon, and, and I pulled this picture up. I'm like, Hadley, look at this. And she looks at it and goes, oh, so cute. Because everything, that, oh, so cute. Everything, puppy dogs, princesses, whatever. So she, she says, oh, so cute. And I said, Hadley, what does this mean? And she goes, I love you. (laughs) 
<clears throat> yeah, I don't know how to get through this, Bill. I don't know. I don't know how to do this. Um, so I'll do what I normally do, which is cry in front of you all. Um, and then I said, what does this feel like to you? And she goes, it makes me happy. Oh, so cute. And she ran away. <laughs> so here's the, here's the thing. Human beings, infants, are born with a deep instinct to find the face of another. Within a few hours, they are almost experts at finding a face, locking in eye gaze. They are looking for somebody who is looking for them. They want to behold somebody beholding them. It's hardwired. It's baked into their very essence. Why is that the case? It's because we are made in the image of God. And he has put this deep into who we are, that we would be locked in an eye gaze that shows delight and worth and value. It's baked into us. Now what John teaches subtly here in this preposition, pros, and what I've experienced with my daughter in this way, John teaches again in a powerful way, but it's hidden in the language in John 1, verse 18. So here's what it says in John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He's saying Jesus has made the Father known. Jesus has exegeted the Father. He's revealed who the Father is. is. But we, we read it as at his side. Ah, no. Like, the, the, the Greek word there is, is kolpon, which means bosom or heart or chest the one who is at the father's chest the one who is at the father's heart another image of intimacy the son is at the father's very heart he is in loving embrace with the father see see here's the point here's here's what i want us to get deep into who we are it will change everything about our lives intimacy is at the heart of reality intimacy is at the very heart of reality existence flows from perfect intimacy love john later in his letters will say god is love john's christmas account is one of ancient and eternal intimacy. You can't have Christmas without an ancient and eternal and forever intimacy, according to John. This is why the holiday season can be so beautiful and so heart-filling or so brutal and cruel and heart-battering. For some, the season ushers in warmth because you will be in the presence of beloved friends and beloved family. And it will warm you and fill you. But for others, it ushers in the cold feel of a relational winter. Intimacy shattered by divorce. Intimacy shattered by abuse. The distance of death. See, Christmas, whether we are conscious of it or not, is about the intimacy at the heart of reality. And we may not have the words to articulate it, but we feel it. Our world feels it when it's cold and they're alone. They say, it shouldn't be this way. And when it's warm and when we're feasting with others and flourishing, we say, it should be this way. This is what the season is about. 
So the word was turned towards the father. The father was turned towards the son. Intimacy, affection, perfect love. That is the wellspring of all existence. Now, if that weren't enough, here's where my mind melts. Now, here's where my, my head just breaks as I try to get heaven into, into my cranium. So we're going to go from word to with, now to was. The word was. Okay? So the word, God's self-expression, was with God in perfect loving union and was God. So here's what John has just said. He's just said that Jesus from Nazareth is the very ordering principle of reality. He's not just some philosopher. He's not just some teacher. He is what literally holds the universe together. He is God's self-expression that ever was with the Father. And this Son of God is God himself. He is not a creation. He is not a creature. Now, by the way, I want to draw attention to the structure here. Uh, I wrote it this way so you can see the, the form is echoing the content. The word, that's Jesus who we're speaking of, three times it said the word. Matched three times with God in parallel structure. Not only that, they're interwoven. Word, word, God, right? And then you have God, word, God, God. In other words, there is a unity and there's a, there's a diversity. There's an equality between this word and, and this God. It's just brilliant. I mean, it's, it's designed in, in the structure there and it's also what he is, is saying that this Jesus was with God in the beginning and he was God. He is God. So the, the design is just brilliant. Now this word, this son of God, this one who takes on flesh as Jesus is the creator. This blue collar carpenter, stone worker from Nazareth built more than tables. He built more than chairs. He built more than furniture. He crafted more than door frames. He carved the sky. He set the stars. He poured the oceans into the basins that he shaped. He set the stones of the tectonic plates into their positions. He is our creator. That's our Jesus. But look at verses 3 through 5 because there's more. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, Jesus is God's living and active self-expression. He is the agent of creation. He is our creator. But he's not only our creator. He's our savior. He's our redeemer. He's not only just the light and life in abstract. He is the life and the light of men, of all human beings. And we need that light. See, at the beginning, God created the glorious garden and he gave his life and he gave his light to humanity. He breathed into them quite literally with his own breath and then he walked with them in that, that garden, that temple place. But darkness descended as humanity turned away from the face of God towards the face of what was twisted and wicked and did not listen to the word of truth but the word of lie and entered into the insanity that is rebellion against 
reality. And that darkness, it swirled like a mist in the minds and the hearts and the bodies of humanity. And that darkness crept across the land and that shadow reached deeper and it reached wider into the nature of humanity and compounded into the great darkness of the systems and the ways of this world. And so God, in his grace, what does he do? He promises a savior would come who would come to fight the dragon of the shadow, the the serpent of the darkness, and overcome the evil that stole life and stole light and left humanity limping with a mortal wound. And this is the long-promised light that would shine in the darkness. This Jesus is the one who would burn away the shadows. This Jesus is the one who would glow in the hearts of humanity. This is what Advent is about. These themes are what Advent is about. But these great themes get covered up, right? They, they get all wrapped about in consumerism and blurred about by distraction, the flashy and the flashing of the hustle and the bustle of the season. Yet the truth is, and here is, if you want to say the sermon in a sentence, the truth is this. Christmas is the gift of God turning toward us to abide with us. Christmas is the great gift of God turning towards us to abide with us. Jesus is the self, is the the perfect self-expression of God. And in Christmas, the, the miracle that has happened is the Son who was ever face to face with the Father has entered this world and turned his love towards us. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus is Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Right? God with us. God with us. Not just God with us in proximity, like, hey, I'm hanging out with you. But God with us in proximity where he turns his face towards us and it says, me and you, face to face. Face to face. It's one thing to walk into a room, and let's say it's somebody you admire, whether you, you know them from afar, they're famous, or you just you know them um, and, and you admire them. It's one thing to walk into a room and say, I was in a room with them. It's another thing to walk into a room and have them turn and see you and their face light up and say, you're here with us, towards us. Now, Heraclitus, remember that Greek, that Greek philosopher that I spoke of a little bit earlier? He was right. He was right. There is a divine reason. There is a divine self-expression from which all things proceed and all order and harmony cohere. He was absolutely right. Now Logos is Jesus, the Son of God. But Heraclitus was so not right. When he said everything flows and nothing abides, everything gives way and nothing stays fixed. Because he didn't know this Jesus. And he didn't know this God who doesn't change, who stays, who will not leave us, who will not forsake us. He comes to abide with us. 
The same God who ever was love, ever will be love. The same God, the Father facing the Son, the Son facing the Father. He has remained faithful and loving even when we remain faithless. He has turned that faithful love of eternity past to us in Christmas. He has turned his gaze of love to us. Now, he turned to me. And I don't mean that fellow student in that awkward moment in that class at university. I mean, 2,000 years ago, at Christmas, when the baby's cry split the night and it was a war cry against the, the dark realities of this world, when he was born, he turned to me. When the word became flesh, he turned towards me. In his life of everyday faithfulness and anonymity, trusting the Father, he turned towards me. As he walked this road of human experience, he turned towards me. With his faithful life of ministry, teaching and healing, loving and showing who the Father is, he turned towards me. And when he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he turned to me. And when his eyes looked out and scanned the crowd from that cross that he was on, when his eyes looked out at those who crucified him, he turned towards me. And when that baby grew up, and walked out of that grave with scars on his body, he turned towards me. And years ago, in April of 2007, when a lonely, melancholy, self-important, and self-righteous soul faced the darkness of his own soul on the floor of apartment B03 at U Creek Apartments in Longmont, Colorado, he turned towards me. And he changed everything. And that resurrection couldn't have happened without his resurrection, which couldn't have happened without the crucifixion, which could not have happened without his incarnation, which could not have happened without Christmas. He turned towards me. His face of love turned towards me. And though my faithfulness has faltered time and time again, yesterday, this past week, last month, throughout the years, he has remained faithful. Yet he abides with me, and so it is with you. The miracle of Christmas. He has turned towards you in the miracle of Christmas. The face of heaven has turned towards earth in the miracle of Christmas. The word has turned towards you by becoming flesh. Christmas is an invitation into the intimate love of God. Christmas is the gift of God turning towards us to abide with us. Intimacy is at the heart of reality. And so I want to ask you, will you this season seek to see beyond the surface? Seek to see beneath the skin and beneath the wrappings into the intimacy that is the heart of reality. Will you see him turning towards you?
in the person of Christ? Will you slow down, and as a community, will you meditate on God's turning towards you through his scriptures as we prepare for his birthday? Will you abide with him as he faithfully abides with you? And will you accept the invitation into his love? Because even now, in this moment, he turns towards you. Will you turn to him? And may you turn towards others with the light and love he has shown you. Father, I want to thank you for your love and your grace. You are good. You are good. And uh, we come to this table today to celebrate who you are and what you've done. And we know the ramifications of, of Christmas. Um, we know that Christmas would eventually become Easter and Pentecost, and here we are. So as we come to this table of grace, would you do something new in our hearts and minds that we would live in greater attunement um, to who you are, to the ministry and your work um, that you have brought to us. We love you. Thank you for this time. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.